Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be A-OK. everyone. New episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday, and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Have you ever walked into a store and felt like, okay, if I had a store, this is exactly what it would look like. That is what happened to me when I walked into Catbird, this beautiful little shop in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. They are known around the world for these beautiful, delicate gold stacking rings that they make. Their collection of jewelry is really simple and delicate, and it's the kind of jewelry that you put on and you never take off. You can go swimming in it, you can wear it to a wedding, and all of the jewelry that they make, these delicate pieces made with recycled gold or fair mined from scale mining communities, are really special. They also have this foundation called the Catbird Foundation, which is tied to the ethos of their brand, which is a commitment to making and doing good things. So they donate a percentage of their sales to nonprofit organizations that align with their belief in equality and helping others. They're really committed to serving communities in need all over the world. So whether you go to their store or their gorgeous website, catbirdnyc.com, you're entering a world of beautiful things made by really good people. Whether you're getting a simple birthday present or you're proposing, catbirdnyc.com, informal luxury. Little known fact about my guest today, after winning an Obie Award for the Tony Kushner play Homebody Kabul, he decided to take a break from acting. Then, Tony Kushner convinced him to come back. Luckily for us, he did. Welcome Emmy and Tony-nominated actor Bill Camp to the podcast. A-OK. A-OK. Hey, everyone. My guest today is the Tony and Emmy Award-nominated actor, 
Bill Camp. For over three decades, he has had an extraordinary career. Some of the plays he has starred in include The Crucible, Death of a Salesman, Corum Boy, Heartbreak House, Jackie, St. Joan, and Homebody Kabul. He has a long list of television credits that include roles in The Leftovers, The Night Of, Manhattan, Damages, and Boardwalk Empire. He has appeared in over 30 films, including The Only Living Boy in New York, Jason Bourne, Molly's Game, 12 Years a Slave, Birdman, Loving, Lincoln, Reservation Road, and many, many more. He is passionate about sports, but especially hockey. He is married to actress Elizabeth Marvel. He lives in Brooklyn in the same building as actors Alana Levine and Dominic Musa. Welcome, Bill Camp, to the podcast. Thank you. It's really nice to see you here. It's we probably could have just done here. it in the courtyard of our building, but it's nice to kind of do it professional-like. Right. No, I'm very happy to be here. This is exciting. Excellent. <laughs> I just want you to know that on Wikipedia... They call you a 21st century male American actor. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> You're kidding me. No. So do you what agree with that, that statement? <laughs> In case you weren't sure who you were or what you are, <laughs> Wikipedia has answered it. So I'm here today with Bill Camp, America's 21st century male actor. But what I wanted to know more about you is where are you from in America? New England. I was born in Massachusetts. I was born in uh, Haverhill, Massachusetts, in Hale Hospital, the same hospital that the uh, writer H.P. Lovecraft was born in as well. Well, that's a little-known fact. I know. Isn't it? Now, isn't that great? <laughs> little-known fact. I, I came have with a an choice awesome right fact, now. I, thought. I could pretend, but I'm close enough with you to not... I don't know who that is. So that makes me an idiot. So, no, not at all. He's he's a kind of obscure early 20th century horror, macabre, goth, uh, I wouldn't say gothic, but one of Stephen King's inspirations as a writer in the genre in which he writes. H.P. Lovecraft was writing in that genre in the 20s and 30s, 40s. And uh, was a favorite of mine growing up, which is probably, was probably not good. My mom hated the fact that I read H.P. Lovecraft. Do you think that was his real name? Really? Yeah. H.P., uh, yes. Lovecraft. I, I couldn't, I can't remember what, yeah. No, really. That was his name, Lovecraft. I wish I could start my career again. I Alana own Lovecraft. Lovecraft. <laughs> I feel like my career might have gone in a different direction, but <laughs> I might have gotten more work. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. So you grew up and your mom, you just said, was not a lover of this kind of writing. But tell me a little bit about growing up and who was in the house with you and how did the arts come into your life? Well, both of my parents were teachers. My mom uh, specifically was a librarian most of the time. And so... Taking uh, the Lovecraft titles off. Taking them all out. <laughs> Burn exactly. the Lovecraft books. And... Uh, and my father was a teacher of English romantic poetry and other English writers. That was his sort of specialty. And both of them, my mom was a painter and my father was, my my dad kind of was uh, one of those people who sort of could do anything. He could pick up an instrument and start to play. He was a brilliant writer. Uh, he was a really 
uh, great athlete, but you never really know it because my father, he was sort of anonymous that way. And so it was around the house. We all were exposed to the arts um, and all had my sister, K Katie is a dancer. Um, Where are you in the family I'm lineup? the youngest. I'm the youngest of four. And my sister Megan plays piano. And my brother Peter, who's probably the most artistically gifted of all of us. Oh, I wish he were here. Yeah, he's uh, he's in Vermont right now, which is where my family lives. Right. And uh, he's a brilliant professional musician and a very talented artist. He won the state art prize at the age of 15 in Massachusetts. Was it intimidating having older siblings who were obviously gifted to you when you were young, or did it just feel like everyone in his family does creative things? Yeah, I th that was more of the, the sense in the family was that we all just kind of do it. There was no real competition. There was no kind of... Uh, uh, there was never that vibe in the house at all. Right, that's we my vibe. Had... That's my house that I'm projecting. <laughs> no, of course not. It was loving and supportive, my, wasn't it? My brother was a little intimidating, though, because my brother, of course, he being my older brother, and there was there's a nine-year difference between us, I was always striving to, to kind of impress him and be able to, you know, do things, and and, and I was always falling short. And he did let me know that. there was There was never any overtaking him. Did you go to school where your father taught? I did. My father taught at a really small, microcosmic boarding Teeny school tiny. of uh, just maybe 300 students from 8th grade to 12th grade. So on average, I don't know, like what, 45, 50 kids per class and uh, boarding school. So you were a day student at the boarding school? I was a day student. I could stay there any nights I wanted to, as long as people knew, either the doormaster that I was affiliated with or my mom and dad. Uh, did one you used year to do I, that? Oh, yeah. I did a lot of, a lot of that. <laughs> and then I boarded one year. My dad took a sabbatical and lived in Boston and worked uh, for an organization, A Better Chance. And so I stayed at school and boarded and then... It all went awry. <laughs> so that year, that's the year? I would trace it to maybe a little earlier, but... Can you describe a Suddenly awry? I was off the leash, okay, so to speak. So things became available to you that might not have been. Yeah, I just... It was, you know... Um, How old are you when, when this uh, awakening happened? 14. Oh, and you then, were young. And then 15. I turned 15 during my 10th grade year. So about halfway into my 10th grade year. So I started the year 14. I had already, you know, begun to deviate somewhat. And then uh, and then I became a deviant. <laughs> and did you get in trouble? Yeah, I did. I did. Were you more off the hook or on the hook being related to someone who was so prominently involved in the school and, and beloved, as was, I imagine your dad would have been. He was. It, it was a double-edged sword. It was, you know, there were things that I was forgiven or, or things that, you know, some faculty members let, let sort of ride. And then there were things that uh, because when my father found out about certain things, then I really paid the price. And then, yeah, so... I took a break from that school for a little while, <laughs> and then, and then, uh, and then I came back. They and let I you finished. back. Yeah, they, they let, let me you back. back. 
Yeah, I had to jump through certain hoops and you know. promises were made. Yeah, that's right. Right. Hey, it it worked Lengthly out. Lengthy introspective essays about my life and myself right. and adolescence and whatever. But yeah, it eventually worked out. I bet it makes you a compassionate parent to know all the places a, 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 I, I a person know. can go. I'm I mean, your sure. boy's not there yet. But You'd have to ask him. He's coming in in a minute. <laughs> Silas? <laughs> now, that would be a great interview, no doubt. That would be a far superior interview well, we'll than, see. than me. We'll see. We'll see. That may end up to be true, but so far I'm feeling like this is very promising. When you were at school and not getting in trouble... When did you find that you had a, a love of performing? We did Godspell in fourth grade. And I had to sing, you know, the role of Jesus. And like I, you do. Like, right, exactly. And uh, I sang the role of Jesus, uh, nothing like the great Victor Garber who created that role. <laughs> right. I was so terrified. But in fourth grade, there was something that I was like, this is kind of fun and it was communal and it was like in the in with my friends and my fourth grade teacher then started a kind of community youth theater program out of that the next year we did the christmas carol and i played scrooge and then we did another thing that we actually made ourselves as a bunch of sixth graders and other and then fifth graders and then so i was having a blast and then and then I was asked to be in a production of Waiting for Godot when I was in seventh grade. And, the, and they had a, a community adult theater, Garden Community Theater, which did adult plays. And they hired in professional actors. And I played the boy in a production of Waiting for Godot when I was in seventh grade. And then I did one small thing in eighth grade when I started at Groton School. And then I dropped it. Like a ton of bricks. I Why? just dropped it. Because I, well, as I mentioned before, I started to take interest <laughs> in other things. Uh -huh. like, there were other extracurricular know, ex activities. Exactly. Sports okay. and girls and cigarettes and, you know, stuff like that. Just general, you know, deviant behavior as a young teenager. And so uh, being in a rehearsal room and pretending at stuff was less interesting. So then I didn't do anything until my... Senior year, in 12th grade, I decided not to play hockey that year because uh, I had broken my leg the previous year, and I was in a production of The Crucible. And I played Giles Corey, which the amazing Jim Norton played in our production last year. So how did you become someone who came to New York and went to Juilliard? I was at the University of Vermont, were you a theater major? I was not. I was a classics major. I translated Latin. I really, really loved it. And I did it for five years from eighth grade to twelfth grade in high school. And I I was pretty good at it. And I had some great, amazing teachers that made it really fun and not a task. And, and so that was my major at the University of Vermont. They had a pretty good classics department. And what did you think other than loving the language and the puzzle of translating, what did you think you would do? I had no idea. None. None whatsoever. I thought maybe, oh, I'll get hired. <laughs> maybe maybe it will be an opportunity, like a doorway for me to to see the world, like 
all those uh, Latin speaking countries. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Although all of like some school somewhere in in some exotic place like Spain or Greece or Rome or someplace would, or Switzerland would hire me to sure. come and teach Latin to you know. I don't know who, <laughs> like the sons and daughters of diplomats or some, you know, who knows what. But I, I thought, oh, well, maybe, you know, somewhere someone's going to want a Latin teacher and maybe out of college I'll do that for a few years and I would be able to go someplace cool. And I have no idea. I had, like, no clue. And clearly I wasn't that interested because for my work-study job, I worked in the theater, building sets and working on all the shows. So I was in the scene shop. That was how I made money. And then I got hired. They started a local up there, a IATSE union up there. They started, and I was on the charter for that in 1983. So I got a lot of union calls for rock and roll shows that would come through town and shows that toured, like the acting company, for one came through with Skin of Our Teeth, I remember. And I watched, I, I was there for a load-in, and then I saw all of the actors show up at 10 in the morning in the theater, this beautiful old you know union house in Vermont, Burlington, Vermont, called the Flynn Theater. And I, I was like, what, what are these actors doing here? Why are they here? They should be in bed somewhere. They should be, you know. It's 10 a.m. they all started doing, like, warm-ups and moving around the theater and going into the balcony and like checking acoustics and all of this stuff that I was I was it blew my mind and then I found out I was like where are these people from and <laughs> why are they doing this and I found out that they were all Juilliard grads because they were part of the acting company at that time years ago uh, the acting company still took that was sort of part of John Hausman's plan was you know if you got Kevin in here or Mandy or any of those people to come in, it was, I think at that time, a requirement or it was highly, highly recommended that before you hit the professional world, you do a year of touring because the reason they accepted a certain group of people was the idea was in your first year, whatever group you were, they were casting a company that was going to be a touring company. That was the, that was the, the model. Right, his mission. Exactly. And so... I got to see some group doing this uh, that were graduates, and and it put it in my head, you know, oh, that's a place that actually takes this very seriously. And then I saw the show, and I was like, um, at that time I had started to do shows on the sly with other guys from the scene shop and other majors like English and art. We would produce our own shows at UVM when main stage shows weren't happening. And, the uh, kind of underground kind scenic of, design players, as it were. Well, we had access. We mm -hmm. sort of, you know, in college, the chairman of the department gave us, who worked in the scene shop, because we had these crazy hours, the keys to right. everything. And so it was, we had access, all access to it. And so he was very cool, and he let us, Bill Shank was his name, and he was like, you guys want to make something? Fine, go ahead. You do it on your own time, but here, you have the, you have, all of, you know, what's available. And so he would say, yeah, you have three days where there's nothing going to be on stage. You can do it. You can advertise it. You can do all. And I had a, a couple of brilliant friends that were really great writers. 
And then we would also maybe take American Buffalo, like everybody had to do American Buffalo, you know. But then I had a teacher in the art department because I was also taking a class in the art department. Barbara Zucker was her name. And she, Visual arts. Yeah, sculpting and painting. And then she had a class which was a performance art class too. And I loved her. She was just, you know, I was smitten by her really. And she took myself and a few other of my classmates down to New York to see, to see shows. Like we went to the Worcester Group in 83 and saw Spalding Gray do Swimming to Cambodia, like, I don't know, performance number six or seven. And then uh, at some point we went to go see at Manetta Lane. We saw the Bob and Gilead production that Malkovich directed with Steppenwolf. And then I came back to UVM and I, and I talked to Barbara and I was like, I don't really, you know, I'm feeling, I'm not feeling it here. I'm not really, I don't want to be a Latin major. I called my father up. I said I was going to, drop out and she said well maybe you should get out of here and you know maybe you should go to New York and see if there are schools there and so then I thought well I love Shakespeare because I'd also worked in a Champlain Shakespeare Festival in Vermont during the summers uh, as a carpenter but I had watched so I thought language I love language and where would I be able to learn, where would I learn about Shakespeare? Because I wanted to learn more about that and how to do it. And I wanted to be in a kind of rigid, not rigid, but a, a really structured sort of place, conservatory atmosphere. Yeah, a serious place. So, and I had not taken a lot seriously right. up to that point. Sounds like <laughs> since, it. Since, you know, eighth or ninth grade. So I was excited by that, you know, when something really turns you on. And, and I was really inspired and I had suddenly a real focus, and I was energized by that. And what did your dad say when you called him and said, he I wanted to change? He was cool with it. My parents have always been very supportive of whatever we've wanted to do. You know, he just encouraged me to, eventually when, you know, I got I auditioned for a bunch of schools, and then I you know, decided to go to Juilliard, fortunately was accepted by them, and so I decided to go there. Uh, he said... Uh, get your degree. Make sure you get a degree. Who was in your class? John Benjamin Hickey, the magnificent John Benjamin Hickey, uh, Jane Adams, Matt Servito, Howard Kay. Elizabeth um, Marvel was not in your class? No. Oh, she was in a different class. Kelly Corzan. Um, I know I'm missing people. I'm sorry. We have our 50th coming up, too. The school has its 50th. I don't... <laughs> and me. Bill Camp is going sorry. to come on stage. <clears throat> no, I won't be there. <laughs> they asked Elizabeth. Elizabeth Marvel was in... Her first year was my last year. I see. So that's when you met. No. Wrong. We met... We met in 1985. So, so this is crazy. So I was, I was not in college at the time. I had auditioned and had gotten into Juilliard and had decided that was where I was going to go. I was not in college at the time. I had friends that were a couple of years older than I and were were graduating or just graduated UVM, right? And so right after graduation, we got in a car and we drove to Aspen, Colorado to, to live in a teepee on uh, Red Mountain off McLean's Flats Road. Because the guy who was the president of the Audubon Society, uh, we knew his son, and, and he had offered, uh, you know, for four of us to live in a teepee. 
three of us ended up doing it because one of those guys got a girlfriend and lived in in her apartment. But on the way out to Cal- out to Colorado, we deviated and we went up to uh, Interlochen Academy in Northern Michigan, where Elizabeth was going to school. She had she went. To, oh my God, I want to say from seventh grade to twelfth grade at Interlochen, and. She was in a class that another friend of mine who graduated the year before was teaching. He was her art teacher, and he was teaching a sketching class at Interlochen. And so these four, four of us, four of us in a little GTI driving west went north uh, from UVM and surprised our UVM buddy in his classroom without giving him any warning and like total dirt bags like and and you can imagine yeah you know you looked great and yeah you look all spiffy. we'd already been on the road for like <laughs> yes. we were not going quickly no we were going we were got doing it. a slow ride got it and we got up to interlock and walked into his classroom and Surprise. not being grabbed by security on campus. I don't know how we made that. Looking like, where's Mike's class? Have you seen where's, school- his, where's Mike's class? You know, and we okay. went into the into the room and there were 12, 15-year-old girls on the floor sketching. And we walked in. And I don't remember, I just remember like looking for him and seeing all these, you know, people on the floor. And then Three years later, Elizabeth arrived at Juilliard one day for the last day of auditions. She'd flown in from London where she'd been living, and she had not gone to college. She'd gotten out of Interlochen and done like a month in Hampshire, which you probably know from an earlier interview, and then moved to London. And then for some reason decided, oh, she'd audition at Juilliard. So she came the last day of auditions at Juilliard that year, I don't know what year it was, it was 87 or 88 or something. And John Benjamin Hickey was hanging out with me that day, just by my side, watching, like, watching all the people coming into audition because it was, I guess, a thrill or something. Sure. <laughs> it was like <laughs> nothing else to do. Yeah. So we hung out and we, uh, you know, went through. 150 people on my list in the morning and then wait you as students are in the room with people auditioning no, our job was to monitor check them in. Oh. so you check them in and you marry them people <laughs> check them in and then eventually marry them pick yes. one to marry and then Perfect. eventually marry you did a good job and that's what happened and i and she was the last person on the list to go in and see john sticks and michael Kahn and and i think maybe liz smith which was not an easy panel yeah. And, and I was just just so, like, blown away by this beautiful young woman. But she was, I don't know, she was like, she had wallabies on and blue jeans and long, like a shirt like you're wearing now, but it was like twice as big, like long. And her hair was down all over the place. It was really long, too. And she was like, at that time, you could smoke in the hallway at Juilliard, and she was just smoking. She was the last person on the list. She wasn't, everyone else was like, you know, in their Capizio shoes. And sure. Like, yeah. <laughs> like black. Your audition outfit. Mod- and the yeah. audition <laughs> And then I, and John, I remember I was so nervous because I had to go get her and she was the last person on the list. And I brought her around 
And we were standing outside, I remember room 304, and I was so like, oh, oh, I couldn't say anything. Oh, my gosh. And, and, or was not really like that, but just kind of like, yeah. Yeah. And but inside, John, you were like that. who's a, like an unbelievable conversationalist and just like started up this great conversation with Elizabeth. And so they had this fabulous conversation, and then I was like, Okay, got to go in. And like <laughs> opened the door and probably yeah. stumbled into the room and then announced her name and then split. And for, you know, a couple of months after that, I was going up into the office to see if Elizabeth had, was on the list to be accepted because I was so taken by her. And she was. Eventually, yeah. Jennifer Ely got accepted and then she decided not to go and Beth was the first on the waiting list. First runner she, up. She shut up. So now, all these years later, tell the truth. Did you have Jennifer Ely kicked out of Juilliard so that your beloved could get in? No, I Or just, arrange work for her I elsewhere? I just saw her, though. I just you saw did. her. Yeah, Does we, she know that story? Does she know that she's responsible in some small way? I think so. I think... That's so cool. I don't think it really, you know... I think she and Beth have talked about it before. Yeah. You're like, Jennifer, it's me, Bill! I did yeah. <laughs> you, you Remember? You're, you're responsible for my life. That's amazing. So she gets in. Yeah, and then... It's and, your last year. It's yeah. her first year. And then it was another couple of years before we actually got together. And Yeah. What was your first professional job uh, when you got out of school? The park. Shakespeare in the park? Joseph Papp hired me to be in a Twelfth Night production that John Benjamin Hickey was in. He and I and Lisa Gay Hamilton and I think... I think that was it from from our class. And Jake Weber, who got cast as a you know, one of the guards, which was a, a big job, and he was a year behind us. He was in Tim Blake Nelson's class with Laura Lenny and Jeannie and others. Yeah, I got cast in that and then I got cast in uh the next show in the park that summer, which was Titus Andronicus, and I played Kiron. I had a proper part. And uh, that was that was a great beginning production, and that was the beginning. And then, do you have an agent when you get out of school? I did. I had an agent my third year. I had an I had an agent. I was with J. Michael Bloom. They came and saw me in a production of uh, a play that Ellen McLaughlin had written for our class, specifically called Infinity's House, that Richard Feldman directed. And um, at that time in the third year, people are allowed to come. They're like permitted to come and watch the little fledglings, you know, do their pageantry. And pluck they're, them. They're acting. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, I got some calls then. And uh, I went and signed with J. Michael Bloom. So how long after this, just to help me kind of... Get a sense of time. Were you cast in Tony Kushner's Homebody Kabul? Many years. Many years. That was <laughs> that was two thousand one. That happened. So yeah, like ten years, eleven years later. I imagine before that there were things that were really important to you or impactful. For I did you. so much regional work. Yeah. In in those the ten early years. days. Yeah, because I I I was not one of those actors that felt I needed to stay in town to wait for something. I just wanted to to work. And I was really fortunate uh, because the advantage, at least at that time, working in 
regional theaters was that they were doing master plays. Mm-hmm. You know, they were they were doing plays written by master writers of modern drama or classical drama. And so any time that I had the opportunity to work on something made by somebody like that and spend time with a Chekhov or an Ibsen or Shakespeare or O'Neill or what have you, you know. You were happy to do it. I was really eager to do it. There was such an awareness for me being in New York at that time of like who was getting plucked out in some way, someone your age who's suddenly on a TV show or suddenly on Broadway or, you know, Jane Mm -hmm. Addams, these people who at the time, I Mm -hmm. remember, were working in a very big way, very quickly. Um, Is there a feeling at that time of like, are you looking around at what other people are doing or were you always able to really stay your own course and just feel like this is this is where and how I want to create work right now? Or were you bitten by that same bug that I hear other people talk about when they look back at that time? I think, I think uh, yeah, you know, there's a, there's a certain level of wanting that, you know, unless you're really focused and you're like, I'm only going to do stage work when I get out and I'm only going to do that and I'm going to maybe start my own place and... and or be part of a company someplace. Yeah, I was distracted by that too. I wanted that to a certain level, you know, to to a degree. And we had a we had a number of people in in my group that were on shows right away, whether they were soap operas or they were TV shows, network shows, because that was mostly what was happening yeah. around then, or in movies. Um, and uh, there's a little bit of that feeling of, you know, oh, mm, if it's not happening for me now, is it ever going to happen? And is uh, do I not really cut it in that way? Uh, these people now have, you know, it's, it's all right there for them. And now their careers are going to go on for the next 40 years doing this and being highly successful. And they'll be... And we know what happens after time sure. for everybody. You can tell me if this is an apocryphal story or if this is a true story about you. But I heard that at one point you were rethinking things and took some time off from acting. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. That's a real thing. Totally. Can you talk about that? I had been thinking about it for some time. Like some time being, you know, a couple of years, three years prior to doing Homebody Couple because Homebody was the last play I did. And then I was in Los Angeles. I just was starting to feel, all right, I've been doing this for 10 years, um, and I've been really lucky and very grateful for what I've been able to do, maybe not as uh, sort of uh, paid enough attention to to uh, my gratitude, but I uh, I felt like... I really, I, I, wanted, I was sort of a, a mouse on a wheel, you know, and I just wanted, I felt like stopping. I just, it had been, I don't know, it's sort of a cycle, I think, for me, at least, and I was very focused on just that and a lot of other things that make Bill up, I had sort of shelved, and my identity was sort of wrapped up in just being an actor and other actors in the world of 
acting and auditions and shows and did you get this and are you doing this and that, that and and all of that stuff and I was I think I just it was uh, a dull taste in my mouth or it was no longer really the flame was not going so it was getting down to an ember and homebody was um kind of the perfect thing to stop on because it was long we did it for a long time it was a grueling play to do and so i took a little bit of a break visited elizabeth who was doing a show called the district in los angeles and stayed out there with her and then i remember flying back and doing a workshop with lee brewer of a play and spending two weeks with lee down at mambo binds and another actor which had always been a kind of dream of mine to and do that kind of work or to work to with work Lee? With Lee uh-huh. Work with Lee. Because I had also been exposed to Lee. I'd met Lee at Sundance in the Sundance Theater Institute a couple of times out in Utah. And, um, of course, I knew about Lee from, you know, just reading in, about theater. And yeah. As a, as a teenager in her early years at Juilliard. And then I uh, went back to L.A. and was not... You know, that show wasn't going to be produced anytime soon. It was just a workshop. I think being in Los Angeles had something to do with it. And also, uh, and being an actor in Los Angeles and really feeling like a fish out of water. And I couldn't get into the flow. And I had a conversation with a very, very, very good friend of mine who was like, look, man, just... <laughs> just stop. It's like, not no like, one's making you. Yeah. It's right. like, you've been talking about this for a little while. Why don't you do it? Because it's not going to end your life in any way. And I was living in that place of this false expectation, you know, appearing real that if I stopped, everyone was going to forget about me. Right. It was all going to go away. And then I was never going to start at square one again. And all of that, you know, that untruth, I just sort of found the courage to say, okay, well, all right, I let it go. And that's it. And I and I really, uh, I think about doing it again because it was such a rich, enriching and nourishing time for me. And it was so important because it was, um, it was just a, I divorced myself from the business, absolute. That's really. incredible. And the only person from the business who got in touch with me. I had just signed with a new agent. So they were very pleased with this decision. And I disappeared. Right. And it was not like, great. What's not great? No. And I really like, I took it all, I essentially just cut the cord. And, you know, I, I, I got in touch with them eventually. And then I had to get in touch with other people, but, and said, this is what I'm doing. You right. Know, don't expect me to, but it was Tony who stayed in touch and uh, we wrote each other letters. And then eventually, approaching almost two and a half, three years later, Tony uh, called because eventually he, I got a phone number and like that. Like you do. Mm-hmm. Well, I had no cell phone at right, that time. Right. And they were kind of new. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and at least for me. I wish I, wish I still had no cell phone. And, you know, tell me about it. Yeah. Glendale Mall bought my first. Nokia. Nice. Right? And Tony called and said, we're doing Homebody again. It was going to be a little bit different. You know, production value was going to be different. 
and Tony worked on the play, and would I play Gwengo Twistleton again? I thought about it for a little bit, and then I thought, that's kind of cool to stop with this thing, and then, and I won an OB for it, and then to start again, to play the same role, to sort of bookend this break with the same play and come at it with a totally different set of, I don't know, judgment or lack of judgment or just a whole new landscape. And it was great. You've been doing this 30 years? Yeah. I would say. Yeah. When you say yes to something at this point yeah. in your life and the script arrives at your home yeah. or I bring it up to you from the lobby, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in a this... neighborly way. <laughs> not that I'm interested in seeing in what's in the envelope. Not at all. I'm, I'm just doing you a nice favor and bringing it to you. How do you, <laughs> could you imagine, looks like this manila envelope's been opened. <laughs> How do you start? How do you start? How do you decide? How do you do you work differently now than you did? Do you work differently on each thing? Do you like to learn all your lines? I know Evo yeah. likes his actors to come already off book. Yeah. You know, different directors work different ways, different actors work different ways. For yeah. certain people they're like, oh my God, I have to be off book before I start. And other people feel great pleasure in having that assignment and knowing that that's what's expected of them. Do I, you I take great pleasure think? in that. Yeah. It's good to give me direction. I'm okay. good. <laughs> it's good okay. to like. Well, put the mic more close to your mouth right now. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, teasing I'm inherently lazy, uh, you know, really. And so it's taken a lifetime for me to to really be proactive about this stuff. I'm amazed at, at the fact that, you know, I, I get my kid to school every day. Yeah. Or things like Most that. Most days. Yeah. Most days. Yeah. yeah. I was just telling your husband the other day that we're we're late because mm-hmm. I know your kid has to be at school like at an ungodly hour. Yeah. But uh, but we like to get our children out of the house as early <laughs> as possible. This is all by school starts at 10. We just have them there. No, honey, you got to be there at 7. Right. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> the excellent Dom and I idea. go back to bed. <laughs> I, left, I left my heart on at the school half an hour early the other day. I was like, this is the way it's going to be from now on. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a book. Here's a bagel. Um, yeah, no, I, I'm one of those people that likes, like, if I won't be fully off book uh, if I'm not told, but it was Evo who really started that uh, for me back in a production of The Misanthrope I did with him years ago. And we were told that before he arrived, we were all had to be off book. And so then subsequently I found, oh, what a great advantage this is. Some people don't. Um, and so I've applied that to television scripts, movie scripts. I would be lying if I said I did that with every part. You know, sometimes I'm not given words. Birdman, I didn't have my words until I got to set. You didn't know what your no, person I did, would be doing. I did, I did, I did four different versions of a different monologue, and then I ended up doing that Macbeth monologue tomorrow. Yes, but did you did you just improvise that or did uh, I knew that speech anyways because I had from, played Macbeth. For me, it makes a huge difference. As a, it just makes a big difference in terms of my ability to be able to play with the other people and and just live it. 
you know, as opposed to struggling or or having any kind of doubt or any kind of editing that's going on in my brain is generally about if I'm uneasy with lines, it's about that. And for me, that will read and it will get in my way. It will be an obstacle for my comfort level and for me being as comfortable as possible, especially on that sort of in that kind of uh, form, television or movies, where it's, you know, two cameras, three cameras, one camera, 70 people, 13 people, 12 people, lights, no lights. It's still a weird kind of, it's strange. And so to feel really confident or at least comfortable in that, in telling a story and being comfortable in character and also with somebody else, it's, it's, it goes a long way towards getting there for me if I'm off book. When you were auditioning probably more than you might have to now at this point, I mean, you are doing so much work in every, you know, in television, in film, in theater. A lot of people know you now. So perhaps you audition less now? Yes. Okay. When you were auditioning more, yes. uh, did you get nervous about auditioning? Yes. How did you get through that? A lot of my guests take beta blockers. No, I They don't want to lose the job to nerves. They just want to get the job and then figure it out. <laughs> Kevin Klein once said something, I remember, and I, I think it was to me. I like to think it was to me. I was in a production of Hamlet that he did, the second Hamlet that he did at The Public, that he directed with uh, Barry Edelstein and Joe Papp. I remember one day, I think it, I, I think I had an audition, and uh, uh, Rene Rivera, who is a brilliant actor who I knew from Juilliard, had graduated the year, uh, no, he was in the fourth year, my first year, again, a fourth, first year. And there's a, a weird sort of like bonding that happens with fourth and first years. Anyways, Rene was in that production. He and I were dressing roommates and we got to be really, really tight. And one day the three of us were talking with Kevin. There was an audition and Kevin said this thing I still think about and I still pass on to other people regardless of their experience or not. It's There's a very fine line but there's a, a certain level of you just have to not give a shit. You just have to not care. A certain part of one has to not care. And I would tell myself that a lot, you know, and, and it was something that I was really lucky, you know, it didn't, I certainly like fell on my face many, many, many times auditioning and didn't get parts because you know, I've auditioned for a thousand, thousand parts and I've played maybe 200, you know. Right. So, but Kevin, early on, this was 1990, so I was, I was just out of school. It was later that winter after the summer in the park. I've never forgotten it. And I've certainly forgot more stuff in my life than, than remembered. And, uh, it, but that was, I thought was really great advice because I, it, I still go to that. I still go to that. And I found a way more, I think, a quicker way of getting to the place of like, nah, nah. And do, can you put that into and words, that gives me what a, that place is, like how you nah, do that? There's no way I can articulate that really. It's your own. I don't own. know what that is. It's, it's just sort of, eh. it's a, it's it's a, a sound free, more. It's a free place is what mm -hmm. it is. It's a free place, which is not about really people pleasing. 
you know, because that's the nature essentially of what we do when we walk into an audition room is to please people, right? So if that kind of corrosive thing seeps its way too far, you know, and it's whatever, you know, cunning way it does into, then that's based on an inherent self-doubt. If I need to please you, that means there's something that is in me that feels lacking. And so if I, it, I would get to a place of, you know, not really giving two cents about whether or not you like me or not and that being okay and that that wasn't going to change my life in any way, you know, because I would have another audition. And oddly enough, when there's a freedom and a kind of, I don't know, a freedom that happens in that not caring, I think people see that. And I think because they, there's a there's a certain light that happens and not uh, uh, not being distracted by, oh, I'm, I'm thinking about what are you thinking about on the other side of that table? Well, I know you're not here trying to please me, but you do. And this was just so much what fun. What about my audition story? Do you have was one? Was that it? Because I thought I was so excited because the, there are so many times as actors, right, that you have to go in and you and you have to hold a gun and you have to like you have to like <laughs> but you don't have one you have to mime yes. an entire scene yes. like robbing a bank yeah. or and do or you pretend to have a gun or not <laughs> right it's ridiculous and then there's like bang bang in the script and you have to shoot the okay. <laughs> anyways go we all know how crazy that is that's not my story oh I was auditioning for the production of Death of a Salesman that Brian Dennehy did. I'm auditioning at the old Bernie Tulsi Studios down on 27th or 28th Street. I go and it's the big Broadway audition for uh, Death of a Salesman. And uh, I think Bob Falls was directing it. And I walked in and I was reading the part of uh, Charlie's son, Bernard, who worked at the heart at the sporting goods store with Biff and always worshipped Biff and Biff and later has a scene with uh, Willie where he tells him, you know, uh, what happened years and years and years ago. And and it's a page monologue and I had to do that. And I started the monologue and I was I was getting into the monologue going and I got about a third way into the monologue and the door behind me opens and uh, opens quite loudly and the room is completely stopped. And I look at everybody in front of me and Two people stand up, Bernie stands up, and somebody else, I don't know who it was, a reader or something, stand up, and then Bob Falls is there, and then Will was there, and somebody else, and and I'm looking at their faces, and their eyes are all wide and sort of smiling, and I turn around, and there's Arthur Miller standing behind me, like all six, six of him. And this was in the middle of the winter time, so he had a giant overcoat on, a hat. I mean, the, what you would picture him in his big glasses and a scarf and just this mountain of a man. And Arthur Miller. And I'm, <laughs> I'm speaking his word. And then he came in and said, oh, hi, hi, and sat down and, and like took his jacket off and put down his briefcase and sat down in the chair and then looked up and was like, okay, sorry, go ahead. And I was essentially so dumbfounded and, and, and awestruck that I 
I really I don't think I even made it through the audition and then just left. <laughs> that was my that's that's my most memorable audition ever. That is unbelievable. That's unbelievable. Yeah, it was crazy. And that you got up. The, this is what I find amazing about actors. You got up the next day. You did it again. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like yeah. You just... I went to some, some other audition. That's For like right. Colgate commercial. That's right. right? I don't know. <laughs> it's all the same. Wow. That's extraordinary. Right. Well, you're extraordinary. I feel. Oh, thank um, you. So are you. I feel really proud of you. I feel like um, you live your life by your own rules. And you've made a life that is just so filled with love and creativity and adventure. And I see how you raise your kid. And it's really inspiring to me. So I really thank you for being here today. Oh, thank you. It's really extraordinary. So thank you, Bill Camp. We both do pretty good as parents. We're doing okay. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast, and on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.